Welcome to Practical Christian Living. If I walk in love towards you, then I'm not going to steal from you. If I walk in love towards you, I'm not going to take advantage of you. If I walk in love towards you, I'm not going to slander you. If I walk in love towards you, then, you know, we, we can go on. I'm not going to gossip about you if I'm really walking in love. A great way for us as Christians, by the way, to practice walking in love is to drive in love. Right? Why are we so angry when we drive? Why so angry? Do you want to follow all the commandments and fulfill everything Jesus ever said? Here's the secret. Ready? It's no secret. Walk in love. If you are already walking in love, you will put others before yourself and you will fulfill the law, all of the law. With more out of James chapter 2 and loving your neighbor as yourself, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Most Christians at this point were Jewish. This is the only place that the word assembly actually is synagogue. Now, other places it's church, but here it's assembly, synagogue. If a man comes into your synagogue, a man with gold rings, literally a gold-ringed man and fine apparel, and there should also come a poor man in filthy clothes. So now he gives the contrast. Now you got to picture a wealthy person in their day in Rome and what they would have looked like. They had stores that if you wanted to make an impression, if you had a party you wanted to go to or a gig that weekend and you wanted to go to it, they had stores you could go and buy rings with for. And you could buy a ring for, rings for every finger. They would put rings on every single finger on their left hand. And then they would carry uh, part of their clothing, kind of their sash or whatever in that hand. And can you picture a Roman? all decked out with rings all over a hand. And so you're part of the church or their synagogue, right? Because most of these are Jewish Christians, right? And here comes this rich man in. Ooh, come on in, sit down. We got a building project going on. In contrast, somebody coming in just wearing absolutely filthy clothes. And in the Greek, the word for filthy clothes there is filthy clothes. And they pay attention to the one wearing the clothes, verse 3 says, and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Now, he's not saying sit here at my footstool like, you know, right up in front. He's saying get out of the way. I want you up and under out of the way, not in front of the footstool, but almost literally under the footstool. To the, the rich person, you say, oh, we want you to have this special seat. But to the poor person, you push them away. And so then in verse five, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I gotta say that James is not light on them when it comes to partiality. He tells them that because they have been partial in the faith, that they have evil thoughts. And the way this is written is that it has happened. Not that he's giving them a warning and telling them, listen, I want to talk to you guys before this happens, but this has happened and they have been partial. They've, poor people have come in and they have been pushed aside and rich people have come in and they have been uh, touted because they are rich. And again, nothing could be further from God. The Bible when you study the Old Testament, you find that God cares about the poor greatly. I don't know that he cares about the poor because he loves the poor any more than he loves the rich. I was reading a commentary today that said that, that God has a special place in his heart for the poor. 
I don't know if that's right. I think that God's not partial, but I think that God sees the suffering of the poor. And if God has a special heart for the poor, it's because he sees their suffering, not because he loves them more than he loves someone who is rich. God doesn't show partiality. God doesn't see men based upon those things, but he sees the suffering. He sees the heartaches. He sees the, the hardship. And so over and over again, the Bible encourages us to take care of the poor. In fact, the Bible says, Proverbs, when, when you lend to the poor, you lend to the Lord and he will repay you. And I love that. God wants you to know that you can give to the poor. You may say, well, I am poor. How am I going to give to the poor? God wants you to know that you can give to someone who's struggling more than you are and that God will take care of you. That's why the Bible says, give and it will be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together and running over. That's why the Bible says, give and God will give back to you tenfold. Not so that you can go, oh, I gave $100. I'm going to get 1,000 back. I'm going to give 1,000. I'll get 10,000 back but so that you know you can be generous and you can give to those who are struggling. In Exodus, after the Ten Commandments are given, there's a section on precedent given to the judges of Israel. Remember that Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, had told him, you're gonna get war out here. You need to raise up 70 men who will be judges among you. And when there's something really difficult, let them come to you. And so Moses had 70 judges in Israel under him. And he gave a section in the law for precedent. He gave different accounts of things that would happen and how they were supposed to judge. And they were simply meant for precedent. That is, you know, if a donkey goes over, you borrow a guy's donkey and he's with you and the donkey dies, it's his fault. If the donkey dies and he's not with you, then you owe the guy for the donkey. It's just things like that. Really hard to find application, by the way, when you're, you're studying that particular passage. But right in the middle of it, God says, if a man takes advantage of widows and orphans and the poor, I will kill him. God doesn't even say, this is what I want you to do. He just says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. How does God feel when someone takes advantage of the poor? God said in the Old Testament times, I'll take you out of here. God, in essence, was saying, you want to take advantage of widows and orphans? I'm going to make your wife a widow and your children an orphan if you do that. Now, that ought to be scary enough. I mean, we're talking about partiality today, but that verse goes one step more where someone's taking advantage of people who are impoverished, of widows and orphans, and that ought to scare anybody who somehow takes advantage of them. That ought to be a scary thing because God said, I will take care of them if they do that. And over and over again, the Bible speaks of how they are to treat the poor. I'm telling you, I'm out of sorts. I'm tripping over the pulpit. I'm like tripping over my tongue. I'm going to fall down in a minute. <laughs> okay, so let's pick it up in verse uh, five. Listen, my beloved brethren. And again, his tone with them has become harsh. Listen, he says, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? He says, God chose the poor of this world. It says in Isaiah that when the Messiah would come, that he would preach the gospel to the poor. When John the Baptist was wondering whether or not Jesus was really the Messiah, John sent and said, are you the one or should I look for another? Remember, he's been arrested and he's just kind of like in this little bit of a turmoil. And Jesus says, you go and tell him what you've seen. The blind have received their sight back. The lame are walking and the poor have had the gospel preached to them. It was one of the signs of the Messiah. 
Again, if we're going to continue on the ministry of Jesus, then we are to continue on that ministry to the poor. I've got to tell you, it made me revisit something that I've been thinking about for a while. And I brought it up a while back and, and we, we, we never did it. And we've still kind of out there a little bit. And that is the idea of getting a, a, a facility on the south side of town. And as a church, helping to rise up a church in the poorest part of town. Because inner city churches struggle so much. But it would be a help if there was a sister church that could come alongside and say, we're going to help support you and we're going to preach the gospel to you. So this is something that's been on my heart for a while. And as I studied this, this passage, I thought, you know, you know, preaching to the poor, I think that you are never more successful in ministry than when you're preaching to the poor. There are people who have called out to God. There are people in need. There are people that cry out to him in their need. And when you bring, they have no resources to help themselves out. And when you bring the gospel to them, it was a work of the Messiah. And God has called those to be saved. A little bit later on, he would say to the church at Corinth, look around you. There's not many noble. There's not many rich. There's not many wealthy. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. So he says, God has chosen the poor to be heirs to the kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean that God has, that God neglects wealthy people and a guy gives a, a message that if you are doing certain things here on earth, uh, you're sending up pillars into heaven and gold into heaven and you're going to live in a palace. If you're doing bad things here on earth, then uh, you're sending up cardboard and you're going to live a shack, in a shack forever. I don't think there's any shacks in heaven. <laughs> I don't think that God shows partiality. But I believe that the message of the gospel is received by the poor far more than it is by, by the rich. I had a person tell me one time, I, I really believe that God's called me to the wealthiest part of town to preach the gospel because nobody cares about the wealthy. <laughs> now, maybe the Holy Spirit was speaking that to him. I don't know. I can't judge, right? I'm not God. I'm not in the place of God and I can't speak that. But that seems like an awfully easy thing to say. It's like you just have a hard time believing them. It's like the person who says they're called to go to Hawaii and start a Calvary Chapel. Maybe they are, but isn't everybody called to Hawaii to start a Calvary Chapel, right? When we say, you know what? I believe God's calling me to go and minister to the poor. We know that that's God's heart. And it's not that, that rich people don't hear the gospel and aren't saved, but it is hard for a rich person to get saved because their money gets in the way. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And some people try to make that softer by saying there was a gate that was called the eye of the needle and you had to get the camel on its knees to go through. And that's what Jesus was saying. But how did the disciples respond? Do you remember? They said, who then can be saved? They were astonished that Jesus would say that. It's the eye of a needle. But Jesus said this, with men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God can even bypass uh, the riches of an individual that would keep them out of the kingdom and bring them in. Joseph of Arimathaeus was a wealthy man that Jesus was buried in his tomb and he gave his life to the Lord. Uh, Barnabas was a wealthy man. Barnabas gave his life to the Lord and then gave everything that he had away. And there are other wealthy people in the early church. Ananias and Sapphira is another example of wealthy people, but that doesn't end well. But there's other people who were wealthy that uh, did give their lives to the Lord and God used them. So it's not a matter of whether or not we have money. It's just that the gospel seems to go down easier to someone who is impoverished. They are chosen, it says. And then in verse, uh, in verse six, but you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? 
And I think we go back to their culture. The rich were oppressing them, dragging them to courts. The rich were becoming wealthy off the backs of the poor, which has always been the case. And he says, do not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called. Now, again, James is hard here on these guys. He just said that by them showing partiality to a poor person, to a rich person over a poor person in their church, that they were blaspheming the, no the noble name by which they've been called. That God being non-partial is so much a part of who he is that when they play favorites with those who have power or money, that they're blaspheming the name of God. Now, that's not the last time that he gets really tough with them. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture. Now, what's the royal law? Do you know? And I love that verse eight calls it the royal law. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Of course, Jesus is the one who said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Old Testament had said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor. Jesus added, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in the, in the early 80s, there was something called the self-esteem gospel. Have you guys been walking with the Lord long enough to remember that? And they began to teach the main problem with people is that they don't have any self-esteem, that they don't like themselves. And, and, and Jesus said, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you don't love yourself, then how are you going to love your neighbor? So we got to start by loving yourself. So everybody give yourself a hug. Just reach up now and hug yourself because how are you going to love? And that's just such nonsense because you already love yourself. And, and people still to this day will go, well, not really. I don't love myself. I don't like myself. I hate myself. No, it's not true. If you hated yourself, then you would want to be ugly. You're ugly and I'm glad. I hate you, right? You're upset because you don't think you're where you should be or you don't like yourself and you have a low self-esteem because you like yourself. And if you don't believe that, there's nobody that you think about more than you. Now, I wish that wasn't the case. And I'm not, you know, I'm pointing a finger, but I'm pointing fingers back at me, right? How do I know that you think about you more than anybody else? Because I think about me more than anybody else. It's the way we are. And Jesus knew that. And so he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And here he says, you do well if you love your neighbor as yourself. And the whole thing is, is that you fulfill all the law and the prophets if you love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Galatians says. That's what Romans says. All of the law and prophets are fulfilled in this, that you love your neighbor as yourself. If you're a brand new Christian, you don't know any of, the, of, of what God wants from you. You don't know any of the Old Testament laws. You don't know what the New Testament says. All you need to know is walk in love. Walk in love towards people. Treat people the way that you want to be treated. And you will fulfill the law of God. The law of God will be fulfilled in your heart. You don't have to memorize the Ten Commandments. You don't got to memorize the 616 Old Testament commandments. And I'm glad we don't have to memorize that because I can't memorize the Ten I can't remember the four main topics I've covered in a book I'm teaching, <laughs> much less the, you know, the, the 616 Old Testament commandments. But if I walk in love towards you, then I'm not going to steal from you. If I walk in love towards you, I'm not going to take advantage of you. If I walk in love towards you, I'm not going to slander you. If I walk in love towards you, then, you know, we, we can go on. I'm not going to gossip about you if I'm really walking in love. A great way for us as Christians, by the way, to practice walking in love is to drive in love. Right? Why are we so angry when we drive? Why so angry? I find myself angry. I think it's just the stress. It's just being in traffic. It's that every street in Tucson is torn up. Am I right? 
Okay, so I'm angry. Don't clap that. Don't applaud for that. <laughs> so I'm I'm, I find myself driving angry. I'm just driving. I'm mad. See somebody, it's like, Pastor Robert, hi. <laughs> yes, I'm driving joyfully and in the Lord and in love. <laughs> you know, letting people in and driving in love is a good way to practice walking in love. But if we walk in love, then we fulfill it all. And he's saying, look, whoever comes in, he's not saying treat the rich man poorly. He's just saying, treat them the same. Honestly, treat them the same and give them the message of the gospel the same. And if you do that, if you, do, if you walk in the royal law, and again, that's a good name for that, isn't it? The royal law. Why, why is it called the royal law? Because it came from the king of kings, the Lord of lords. It really is a royal law that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. And he says, if you do that, you do well. But if you show partiality, verse nine, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Remember again, these are Jewish Christians. They know the law. And understanding their philosophies in their day about the law, there were rabbis in their day that taught them that if they kept more laws then they broke, that then they would make it into heaven. That you kind of stacked everything up against each other. And if you kept laws and broke laws, you want the laws that you kept to be higher than the laws that you broke and you made it into heaven. There was even a rabbi during the time of Jesus and Paul that wrote that if you kept one law, just chose one law, one of the Ten Commandments and kept it, then you'd make it into heaven. So you could say, I'm not gonna murder anybody. Bible says you shall not murder. I can do everything else, but as long as I keep that one commandment. When Jesus came, he said the opposite, didn't he? There's this guy out there during the time of Jesus teaching that if you, you keep one law, you make it into heaven. And Jesus said, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And if you, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but I tell you, if you're angry with somebody, then you've murdered them in your heart. You've already broken it. Jesus took it further, not to tell us that we had to be perfect in our flesh, First time I ever read that, I was 14 years old. And I read it and I didn't know what to think of it. <laughs> be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. But what it's saying is that I can be perfect by the cross right now. That when I ask Jesus to forgive me, when I call upon his name, he makes me perfect. And that's the standard to get us into heaven. There's no other way that we're gonna make it into heaven by our own works. It's gotta be by the perfection that only comes from the cross. Now, he tells them, if you guys are not showing partiality, then you are in transgression and you are sinning. It is a commandment that you have broken. And he's now going to couple this showing partiality to murder and committing adultery, which are problems. <laughs> I tell you, I'm just gonna wrap this thing up and quit. Um, for he who said, do not commit adultery and also do not commit murder, now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. He's dealing with this issue. What if you break one part of the law, but you don't break another part? What if you commit murder, but you don't commit adultery? You commit adultery, you don't commit murder. And he's saying, any law you break, you become a transgressor. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. He, in other words, he's saying, if you are showing partiality to individuals, then you're breaking the law every bit as much as murder or adultery. That's pretty strong. He then goes on to say, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, the one who doesn't show mercy will receive no mercy. There's no other way to describe that besides that person perishes. Now, remember that the Bible says that how we give mercy out is the way we're gonna receive mercy. How we judge people is the way we're gonna be judged. And if we aren't gonna forgive people, then God's not gonna forgive us. So what God cares about most, I am persuaded, is not so much the little laws and rules that we make up. Maybe you're struggling with smoking. You go through a whole day and you don't have a cigarette, but you have been the nastiest person to your husband that you could possibly be. Why would I pick a girl to struggle with this? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just saying. And at the end of the day, you think God's happy with me. I didn't smoke a cigarette. And God's up at him going, oh no, you're in so much trouble because <laughs> of the way you treated people today. Now, don't leave and tell people, Robert had a really off night. He said we could all smoke. Okay, I didn't say that. All I'm saying is a lot of times that we have a higher concern for things that we do and don't do when God really cares about is the way we treat each other. The amount of mercy we give is the amount of mercy we get back. And I'll tell you what, I need mercy. And therefore, I wanna be merciful. I don't wanna be judged severely by God. So I don't wanna judge people severely. I, I want to judge people as lightly as I can. In fact, the Bible says, judge yourself. You know, and you won't have to be judged by God. Be hard on yourself and don't be hard on other people because we don't want God to judge us in that way. On the day of judgment, I want as much mercy as I can possibly get. But what is the lack of mercy? That would be perishing. So he is saying, as he did with the way that we handle trials, approve us before God. The way we handle temptation reveals whether or not we have a genuine commitment. The way we handle the word of God reveals whether or not we really have a, a relationship with God. And if we are showing partiality, it is a revelation that we have not really entered into a true relationship with him. This is one of the proofs to genuine Christianity. And if it's something that we are showing partiality with, then may God really touch our hearts. May God really speak to us. If we still have prejudice, if we have excuses for prejudice that's in our hearts, can we just get rid of that and really reach out to those who are struggling and understand we're probably gonna be tested. We should be looking out this weekend for who walks through the door. <laughs> Maybe they'll be somebody really famous. And if they're followed by a filthy person, then go right to the filthy person. <laughs> Just ignore the famous person altogether and go right to the filthy person. Because I think God's gonna test us in this. And with that, stand with me, would you? And let's pray. Father, we wanna thank you as we take time to look here in the book of James. And we cover a passage that even though the Bible says a lot about it, doesn't seem like we talk about it much. And that, that one of your characteristics, one of your attributes is that you don't show any partiality. That you look at the heart, you don't look at the outward. Our earthly achievements mean nothing to you. And Lord, help us to walk by faith that we would not think that we need to treat people who have achieved things better and ignore those who haven't. May we see people the way you see people loving those whom you really love. And what good news for us that you call us, that you don't look at anything that we've achieved before you will give us attention. That is awesome. Lord, we thank you for that. And when you saw us and you called us, you called us out of the, the pit and you called us in the middle of our sin. We are so thankful. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.